you're listening to the City Lights Podcast, where we are equipping you to exalt Jesus and extend the kingdom of heaven right where you are. Thanks for joining us. We're in a a study called Inherit, and it's really um, poised around this premise like um, as we read through the pages of all the Bible, really, but Ephesians, as it focuses on all the things that we receive from God, we recognize sometimes why we fight for how we fight for things that God just wants to give us for free. And I love before as we were worshiping, um, Andre kind of pulled aside just as we kind of closed up, and he was just um, reminding me that the song that we were singing focused on the word beautiful as we focused on the beauty of the Lord, that we were created by God in the same way as he is beautiful. He's created us in our image, and he sees us as beautiful today in Jesus. He sees us only through the lens of Jesus. He sees us only through the lens of uninterrupted intimacy and friendship and sonship and just as I would hold my son or hold my daughter or you would hold your child and look at them as beautiful, as perfect. Even in their imperfections, he sees you as beautiful. And I just want to um, remind you and encourage you and admonish you this morning that the relationship that we have to our Father and to our Jesus is not just functional, it's beautiful. It's beautiful to him, it moves him, it's artistic in the ways that all the ways that Ethan was, and, and Timothy were talking about a moment ago. But we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 2 and. Um, it's going to close up the series in a conclusion of this series that we've been doing for the last 11 weeks. As I went to go and try and discern and define what all of the book of Ephesians is about in its essence, it was a struggle for me this week because there's so many topics from the first chapter to the sixth chapter. Paul is talking about everything from parents to divine forgiveness to working under authority to praying in the Spirit and not being drunk in the Spirit to... Um, Uh, things like working in the body with a fivefold gift. I mean, there's just literally everything. It just seems like Paul threw the phone book at us with this thing. I mean, in six short chapters covers a lot of different topics that seem dispersed and unrelated. And uh, as a preacher, as a pastor, as I look to close it, that made my job more difficult. Um, But as I read through the passages, uh, the explicit words that Paul used, but also the implicit themes that I saw behind the words in the chapters that Paul penned in that prison in Rome as he wrote it so long ago to strangers that he loved and longed for, I saw one word in particular pop out among the other words. This word is the word that he actually opens the letter with. It's the word that he closes the letter with. And it's really the word that appears 14 times throughout the letter that I think is the essence and the premise of what the letter is all about. And the word that we'll find all throughout the pages and chapters of Ephesians, I believe, whether explicit or implicit, is the word grace that meets us today. Grace from heaven. Grace the way that God defines it, not the way that we define it. Grace that is true of the Ephesians and the Ephesian church and the church at Greenville and the church of 2018. And this is the way that I would surmise it for us this morning, is that the word that inhabits every page of Ephesians from chapter 1 to chapter 6, the word that Paul says is the reason he wrote the book. It's the reason why he's in prison. It's the reason why he can, he can uh, tell us the message he's telling us is that grace is the common theme that inhabits every page and every scripture and every word in the book of Ephesians because it, it empowers us for the life that's prescribed in the book of Ephesians. Grace is the why to every how. Grace is the very thing in chapter 1 that draws us near He opens up to this really lofty theological premise that not only that we know about God, that we can know him, we can draw near to him. And he's saying, that's grace. That's grace that we have that. 
Remember, you don't just have that for nothing or have that because you bought it. You have that because it was paid for a price by someone that, you, that loves you, that wants to know you, that, that, that drawing near to God comes because of grace and that we are ushered into not just otherness, but we-ness and oneness in the church. And, and the reason why there's no more hostility between races and genders and people and socioeconomic classes is because of grace. It wasn't just for free. There was a price paid, not by us, but by him. It's because of grace. It's because of grace. It's because of grace. Grace is the thing that, uh, that empowers us to not uh, be burdens, but to be gifts and to use our gifts that actually the idiosyncrasies and the crazy things that we have and the personality types that we have, they, they aren't there to isolate us, but in the Holy Spirit, we are empowered and given gifts in his train and in his wake, and we can give those gifts to build up the church and the family of God. It's grace that we have a family. It's grace that we have honor in, in parents. It's grace, it's grace, it's grace. It's on every page, and it empowers every work that it asks us to do. Grace is the theme of Ephesians. And so this is what I want to focus on today, if I were to convey to you having read chapters one through six, and if you would have read them one through six, or as you have, you may have seen grace this way. Grace is the good news, the good news of today, that the God who made all things and holds all things and knows all things, that God is the God that moves towards his people in kindness when they run from him in pride. This is the nature of grace. We look into divinity and we wonder what its heart is and we wonder what its fate is for us and we wonder what it thinks about us and we find that, that divinity is Jesus Christ, that the word was flesh and when the world looked at him to ask what heaven was about, that heaven didn't run away from us when we sinned, it moved towards us as we ran away from it in pride. That's what grace is. That's why grace is not an event. It is an ongoing, perpetual, divine rhythm that happens in every single moment of every single day and it's the reason for every single thing happening, even in this place now because grace is God moving towards us, not away from us when we run from him. And so we're like that kid in the lunchroom. Remember that middle school lunchroom that, that brings back awkward memories even when I talk about it? When you got your mashed potatoes and your breadsticks and your mozzarella sticks in your Gatorade and you'd walk through that middle school, remember that middle school lunchroom? It was so anxiety-ridden. And you'd walk maybe past the cheerleader table and you'd walk past the jock table and you'd walk past the computer science table. You'd walk past all the different tables. And then finally somebody said, hey, you, hey, you, yeah, you with the breadsticks and the, and the chicken and the gravy, come sit with us. And the power of choice, the power of somebody calling you out and choosing you and wanting you is unavoidable. It's ingrained in the DNA of every single one of us. We all want to be wanted. We all want to be invited. We all want to be included. But the paradox of human beings is that oftentimes we, we want the people that want us back first. We, we tend to choose the table that chooses us first. We walk by the tables that don't choose us. We reject the tables that don't choose us so that we can choose the one that already chooses us. We can like the people that like us. We can love the people that love us. And we can avoid and, and chastise and mitigate and defend against people that don't like us. But this is, this is why grace is so much different than middle school lunchrooms. It's why it's so different from living rooms with husbands and wives. It's why it's so different from everything we know as humans. Because grace chooses us before and especially when we don't choose it back. Grace chooses us. Jesus leaned over to his disciple one time in the book of John, and he said, did you know that you being with me is because I chose you and you didn't choose me? 
I chose you. You didn't choose me. Choose me. This is what Ephesians is talking about in the very beginning. It's like we were predestined. We were chosen. We were drawn to his lunch table. We didn't choose his table. He, he chose us to join us in our table. That's what grace demands of our theology. That's what grace tells us about why we are and who we are and what we're doing. That's what grace is. It says in 1 John 4, brothers, do not ever forget the precious theology and the reality that you did not love God. God loved you first. And that's how you love and why you love. And Romans tells us that while we were sinners, that God died for us. He chose us before the creation of the, wor- the world. And this is why grace is so important to remember because it's so easy to forget. He moves towards us. He chose us. This is the way that Paul says it. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourself, but it is a gift from God. He chose you when you didn't choose him. Not by works so that no one else can boast. For we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. Ephesians 2 verses 1 through 10 is where we really find the foundation of the whole letter. And I believe he does that because he believes it's the foundation for all of life. That Ephesians 2 explains the essence of grace. And he doesn't stop talking about it in chapter 2 because it continues into 3 and 4 and 5. As many times as you see the word grace, you also see the word therefore because the therefore tells us that it's there because of grace. In the whole book, whether it be about work or government or or, or community, or fellowship, or foreigners, or about fasting, or prayer, about spiritual warfare. It all comes back. It's all therefore what we find in Ephesians 2, which is grace. And the reason why Paul emphasizes it, the reason why I think he says it again and again and again and again is because he knows how easy it is to forget about grace. I had a friend I grew up with. She was a family friend, and uh, her dad was really, really rich. I mean, there's rich people, and then there's people like this person. I mean, you know this type of person. They're not just rich. They're filthy rich. They're just incredibly rich. He had um, an island that he owned. I'm talking about owning an island rich and a plane that he owned to get to the island. That's the kind of rich I'm talking about. I'm talking about he had two Lamborghinis, not just one, but two, in case he wanted to ride the red one or the black one any particular day. And this thing was like a Batmobile. The doors slid up on each side. They didn't open like your Camry. You know what I'm saying? They opened up vertically. This is what we're talking about. This is how rich this guy is. And his daughter, who's a sweet woman, she she grew up and she's super, super sweet, but her daughter, her daughter had everything but was never happy. Her daughter his daughter, excuse me, of, the, of, this, of this incredibly rich guy who had everything. Her daughter was always hot. <laughs> her, her daughter was, was never satisfied, never liked the meal, never liked the clothes, never felt, never, never felt like she had enough, never was content. And this is the, the great irony of somebody that you can have everything but not appreciate any of it because it's so easy to forget grace. It's so easy to forget grace. And this is what I think is uh, carries over from the physical, you know, analogy there into the spiritual is that grace and habits, this is the reason I think Paul focuses us so much on grace from chapters one through six is because grace inhabits every page of Ephesians because listen, in forgetting grace, this is the great tragedy. You could be so rich in Jesus, not knowing it or think you have it because you earned it and our inheritance would become what? It would become an entitlement. 
This is what's at stake here when we don't read Ephesians or when we skip over parts of Ephesians is that our work and responsibility becomes obligation instead of joy. It becomes duty instead of uh, obedience. And our gifts, even our gifts from God become what I deserve. What's coming to me, what's owed to me. If I don't remember the why, the what becomes what's owed to me. And I lose, I suffocate, I kill, I squelch. What should be joy in my life becomes bitterness and not enough, and discontentedness, and angst, and insufficiency, and anger, and disappointment. It's because I forgot my place in the world, because I forgot where I was when I was found, because I think that I got myself somewhere, because I think I'm a self-made woman or a self-made man. I can have the very riches of heaven and think I'm entitled to them. This is what Ephesians is written for. This is, I think, what has been being preached to us as we've talked about over these last 11 weeks. And I hope this message would stick to us longer than 11 weeks, that we would always carry with us a sense of of gratitude and awe that the God who, who owns it all and knows it all and created it all moves towards us when we move against him in pride. So as we work through Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 10, we're going to see that grace is the foundation of this whole letter. It's why we're going to stay in Ephesians 2, because it is the vehicle and the engine that drives everything about life for Paul. He puts it at the beginning and at the end because he wants us to remember why the letter is written. Grace is the reason the letter is written, and grace is the reason life is lived. Grace is the foundation of his letter because he believes that grace is the foundation of all of life book that's written about all things under the stars. I mean, Paul, it seems like you're just writing the entire life manual. It seems like you're just shooting at anything. Any topic that ever come up, you just shoot at all of it. Why would you include all of it? Because everything has to do with grace. Everything changes because of grace, and everything is different when you put on the eyes of grace. There's three things that I want to focus on as we conclude our series in Ephesians, uh, and the phrase that I want to use for this is that the impact of grace on your life, what changes when grace is understood? What happens when we remember grace? It'll be on the screen. What are three things that grace does in our life? What are three things that we can find in Ephesians 2 to help us know when grace has met us, has made its home in us? And the very first thing I think we see is Ephesians teaches us that all of life in Christ, all of life, all of the life that we live until we die is always met by grace. Every moment is a moment of grace, is what I believe Paul is teaching. And this is why he takes us through the remembrance of where we, where we have been so we can understand where we are. If he's done it before, he'll do it again. He'll continue to do it in the future. And he, he's explaining to us the perpetual rhythm of grace in our life all the time, starting in verse 1 of chapter 2. As for you, you were dead. And there's three D words I want us to focus on today. You were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you live Uh, used to live when you followed the way of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air and the spirit who is now at work of those who were disobedient. All of us who lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following the desires and thoughts, like the rest, we were by nature deserving wrath. Dead, disobedient, and deserving, but because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive in Christ, even when we were dead in our transgression. It is by grace that we have uh, been set free. There's a, one of my favorite movies and Broadway plays 
you know, Les Mes, which was written by Victor Hugo, adapted in Broadway, and then, you know, brought to the big screen by Hugh Jackman in 2012, has this really powerful scene in it that some of you guys might be already thinking of, and you think of Grace, and it certainly resonates for me. It's the beginning of the, of the movie, really, when uh, Jean Valjean is released from prison after 18 years of serving uh, for stealing a loaf of bread. And he's released from prison without a lot of answers and with a lot, without a lot of assurance of what his future may hold. And one of the first people he runs into is a religious uh, priest or a bishop, rather, um, that will change the course of his life and definitely represents grace in this story. And I'm going to read a little bit of the, uh, the, the song that is sung between the officials and by Jean Valjean and by the bishop that happens right at the beginning of the movie, much like the beginning of Ephesians as we're studying this morning, that helps to um, mobilize his life into a life of grace. And so Valjean, just to give a setup and a context, has taken shelter with the bishop, and the bishop has provided food and shelter for the evening, and Valjean, if you see the play or in the movie, is just ravenously eating this food. I mean, has nothing to offer this priest except for hunger and desperation and pain and, and, and fret and fear. And so he sits at the table of the priest and eats this food and doesn't know even what to think of the priest, but doesn't have time to really think of the motives or the heart of the priest. He just eats the food and goes to bed. And that night, at least in the movie, he's looking up at the canopy over him of God, and he's having a spiritual conversation, at least in his head, and he decides to take his pillowcase and take everything that he sees and runs out the door as fast as he can to move on into his future life. And the very next morning, the officials catch him and drag him back into the bishop's quarters and say, we've caught him and we've got all of your belongings, and what shall we do with this man? This, this bishop's response and these words, this, I think, can help us narratively understand what, what it is that Grace tries to say to us this morning Monsieur, this is what the officials say. We have your silver. We have caught this med red-handed. This is sung in a much more poetic way. I wish I could sing it for you. I have Timothy up and sing it later. But he had the nerve to say that you gave him this. Pause and decision. Grace has a decision. Grace doesn't have to. Doesn't need to. Grace decides to. It chooses to move towards instead of away. Grace is undefeated in Jesus. Grace is uh, unstoppable. It can't die, and it's permanent. And grace, according to the blood of Jesus, doesn't just make it an event. It's an ongoing divine rhythm that will never end for us in Jesus. For this, it was a, a kind man's gesture. For us, it's eternity defined in Jesus Christ. But this is what, this is what a glimpse of it might look like in a, in a French you know, setting in the French Revolution. But my friend, you left so early, he says. That is right. I did give him the... the, the, the the stuff that he stole, that, is, or that he really stole in real life. And he said, but my friend, you left so early. Surely something slipped your mind. You forgot I gave you these also and takes two extra gold candlesticks. Would you leave the best behind? Grace finds us and, and, and does so much more than just forgives us and does so much more than just forget about our past. It adds blessing to sin. It adds blessing to pride. It adds blessing on top of blessing to things and people that don't deserve it. Mercy means we don't get what we deserve, but grace is more than mercy. Grace is more than just forgiving. Grace is not just pardon, but it's purchasing us. Grace means we get what we don't deserve. We get caught red-handed with something that we don't own and we are forgiven for it, but we're not just left there. We are seated in heavenly places, not just saved from hell, but seated in high places to partner with God. This is what grace is. It's the too good to be good, too good to be true news. It doesn't just rescue us from darkness, but it seats us as though we've never sinned before. This is what true grace actually 
actually looks like. And, and, and grace, it, it needs to catch us in the undeserving place. It needs to catch us. This is what the, 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 the allegory and the analogy of Jean Valjean getting caught in his worst moment is because if he were to be given candlesticks on his best moment, he wouldn't have understood or had an encounter with grace. And this is why Paul has to dig up the past and talk about the past and talk about where we come from so we always remember where we come from so we know where we are. We'll never think our inheritance is an entitlement. But we remember that grace met us when we didn't deserve it. We've got to remember that side of the story because if we think we got grace because we deserved it or when we deserved it or if we were to deserve it, then our paradigm would be different. But the Jean Valjean narrative is not that we got grace when we deserved it. We got it when we didn't deserve it. And a heart that sees grace and finds grace in a moment when they don't deserve it has changed forever. You see, sin, sin can be forgiven but pride can be kept when I receive grace or receive kindness when I deserve it. But when, when I don't deserve it, sin and pride, it can't survive. It is a pride immune area. Paul talks about this. It's a no boasting place. It's a no boasting environment when we recognize how big grace is. And so this is what Paul tells us in the onset of chapter two, that grace is what meets us in every single moment. It's not a one-time event. It's a rhythm of divine order beyond the cross of Jesus that every moment, right where you are, he is meeting you. He does not meet you where you should be. He meets you where you are. He meets you where you are. Grace will meet you when you're messing everything up, especially when you're messing, because it needs to meet you when you're messing it up. That's how it has to happen. That's how the medicine the anecdote or antidote has to meet us. It has to meet it. It can't meet us when we're well. It has to meet us when we're sick. It has to meet us when we're confused. It has to meet us when we're upside down. It has to meet us when we're off balance. It has to meet us in that place, and that's when grace is doing its best work. It's when it's installing its most power, when, we, when it meets us when we don't deserve it. And the story continues, not just that we're forgiven of things uh, that we did deserve, but we get things we don't deserve. And this is what that looks like in the New Testament. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us. He didn't just save us, but he seated us. He didn't just lift us and raise us, but he seated us next to him in heavenly realms as though we deserved it in Christ Jesus. In order that the coming ages, he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness. He meets us not just with expectation or where did you go or why did you leave? He meets us with kindness. You forgot the extra candlesticks. He meets us with kindness every time. And so I think the second thing that is revealed about grace in Ephesians chapter 2 and all the book of Ephesians that grace is going to not just meet us, but move us into something. Ephesians teaches us all of life in Christ is not just met by grace, but it's moved by grace. It's moved from not just sinner, but into saint. It's not just a beggar uh, begging for scraps. It's, it is a... Um, it is an ambassador, not just a beggar, um, for the cause uh, of the kingdom. And this is the way that it says in Ephesians verse, uh, 4, verse 28. And I love this picture for us as it um, coincides with the Valjean narrative. Verse four, uh, chapter 4, verse 28, Paul says this about thieves. He says, anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer. They're forgiven. They're set free. They're absolved of their sin but must work, it says, doing something useful with their own hands that they may make something to share with those in need. I love the picture of this is that 
That grace doesn't just meet us and pity us, but it sees destiny in us and empowers us to something more. So it's saying that anybody that's a thief, the story begins as a thief, but it doesn't stay there. Like the story's not just that Jesus met the thief where he was at and loved the thief as he was a thief, but the, the grace that came and met the thief had this kind of perpetual empowerment and belief and, and, and destiny in it that raised the thief to be generous with what he had. The fullness of grace is not just to meet somebody, but to move them, not just to move somebody for, not just to, to stay there kind of in anger, but to move a person into generosity and peace, not just to stay with somebody in selfishness, but to, to, to rearrange the DNA and the government of their minds so much so that they become selfless, the most generous person. They were a thief before they met grace, and because of grace, they are moved. And I wonder if somehow and sometimes we, we endow and we kind of like embrace different variances of grace that don't move us. They meet us, but they don't move us. A kind of grace that kind of just accepts where we are, but doesn't expect an empowerment to move on into something more, into the fullness of our calling. This is the way that that Ephesians 4.1 says, it just says, as a prisoner of the Lord, then he says, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. I remember the day that I went up to ask, it's a nervous day, right? When you go to ask your father-in-law to marry your, your wife, Dave Cretella, 52, super, like a rich guy, like doesn't, doesn't sleep in to his, you know, to getting to work like I did at Starbucks, like just had years on him. I remember asking him like, you know, the old-fashioned way. I remember sitting on the sidewalk. We were in South Bend, Indiana. I was probably 20 years old and didn't have a ton of plans, but loved Kyra so much. And I think he knew that I loved Kyra and we had a relationship all the way through high school. And I remember asking him, like squeaking the words out, can I marry your daughter? Can I marry Kyra? And he had some expectations of me. He wanted to make sure that I had a job and he wanted to make sure that we had some future plans. But even in his response, which was yes, that day I could sense the grace in his heart and the, sense the grace on, on his lips because for all the plans that I would have, they were never gonna be enough. I mean, they wouldn't be enough for my standard, but it certainly wouldn't be enough for a, a, a standard of a guy whose daughter is in, in risk here. Like his whole thing, he's a family man. And you guys know this. If you've ever asked your father-in-law if this is the kind of father-in-law that you have, his whole thing is his family. It's his daughter. It's his prize. It's his, it's his thing that he poured his life out for. And here's this little 18-year-old kid who thinks he knows anything about anything, asking to marry her? What, you don't even, where's your phone? Do you wear your keys? You, do you know where your life is? Like, I, you know, like you can't take care of, you know, your socks. You've been wearing them for four straight days. How are you going to take care of Kyra? There must have been some grace in the conversation. There must have been something that reminded him of himself maybe when he was 18 years old. And it wasn't just endangerment. He wasn't just giving Kyra over to somebody who he knew was gonna lie to his face. I mean, I was earnest in my pursuit. I knew I wanted to marry Kyra. I just didn't know how to do it. I didn't know how to support a person. And he took that in consideration and he had grace. And ultimately his answer was Yes. And that yes wasn't just an enablement. That yes was an empowerment in my life. And I always remembered every time when I would think about getting married before we got married and after marriage, there was a yes that, that David Curtella offered me through two years before we got married that had kind of attached to it. Like, I believe in you and I know that you can do this and I'm entrusting you and I'm empowering you to do this thing that I, that, that I, 
love with all of my heart and it would hurt me and injure me so much if I, if I were to give this to you and you to betray my trust, but, but I love you and I'm gonna extend grace to you and I believe that if I empower you and I trust you, you can rise and live a life worthy of the request that you're making. I, like, I believe that because of Jesus and because of faith that you're gonna be able to live a life worthy of your calling, not of where you are, but where you could be. And this is what the Father does to us before we respond, before we choose him, before we say yes to him. He offered us his only son because he knew that the spirit within us is more powerful than the world without us. And he entrusts us and empowers us. And this is really what I think is the, the truest form of grace. Grace is not just enabling us. It doesn't enable us to sin. Real grace, if it's real grace, finds us where we are, but doesn't let us stay there. Grace does not enable us. Grace, if you think grace just means it's a get-out-of-jail-free car and you get to do whatever you want and so it's kind of sloppy and I'll just do what I want and God will forgive me and we'll pick up the pieces later. That's not the spirit of grace. That's not why he gave us grace. Grace is the conversation on the sidewalk with Dave Gratella. It's empowering us for so much more than where we are. Grace empowers us for righteousness. It doesn't just enable us for sin. This is what real grace looks like. It's a quote from Anne Lamott. I do not understand the mystery of grace. In other words, she's saying, I don't get it. But the grace of God does more in a person than the law of the land or the law of the covenant. I don't get it when Jesus said you're going to be more righteous than the Pharisees under, the, under grace. I don't know why that works because you should be more motivated by fear than by love. But the whole thing gets turned upside down and Jesus turns the kingdom upside down in our life when he meets us in grace. Because somehow the guy that gets met by grace rather than punishment in the law actually gets more done than people that are living under the law. I don't know how this works, she says, but grace is the thing that meets us where we are but does not leave us where it found us. And maybe today you can reflect on this passage just to think about your version and vision for grace. Grace believes so much more than the world believes of us. Grace sees things in us that we don't see in ourselves. Grace equips us and empowers us to always take the next step. Grace's job is not just to meet us and comfort us. It is to conform us to Christ. And every time we are met by grace, we are moved by grace into something more. That's how we know we've been met by grace. Grace isn't abdication. Grace isn't just enablement. Grace isn't just looking the other way. Grace is empowerment. Grace is the very person of Jesus meeting us right in our moment and not leaving us there. There's always a step. There's always a way out. There's always freedom in Jesus. This is how he operates. Lastly, grace is not just met. We don't just meet grace. Grace doesn't just meet us. It moves us, and also it motivates us. Verse 8, for it is by grace that you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourself. It is a gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good work. We are God's work to do good works. God has worked in us to do good works through us which God prepared in advance for us to do. I remember when I was a kid, as a student, I always looked at teachers and thought that would be an easy job. And so that's kind of why I signed up to be a, a teacher. I went to secondary education to be a social studies teacher. I think that's gotta be easy. You just do the same thing every single day for years and years and years and get paid for it. Seems like a good job for me. I'll sign up for it. I'll read the book once and I'll never have to do any work again. I was completely wrong. Being a teacher is way more hard work than being a student. I thought before as a student that the teacher got to sit there and give everybody else a test and the students had to do all the work, but I was profoundly, profoundly wrong. Teachers, as you know, if you're a teacher, you actually have to read the book. They don't read the book. You've got to read the book. And then you've got to take the book and you've got to make a PowerPoint of the book because they're not going to read it. And they're not going to read the PowerPoint either. So now you've got to make a study guide for the PowerPoint that they didn't read. So now you're reading the book. You made the PowerPoint just to save precedence and to save posterity. They look at the PowerPoint and they think, ah, I won't read that. 
And they think, it's too many slides. I don't want to take notes. I'm going to get arthritis, so I need you to give me a study guide. Give me the study guide with the fill in the blank, and give me the test with the exact same fill in the blanks, and we'll be cool. Is that cool? Is that cool? Can you just give me the exact same questions in the study guide so just memorize it and then forget it the next day? So you make the study guide. And then you realize, and then you realize this. The test is easy. You have to make the test. Oh, like you've got to make 50 questions with all the multiple choice and they, all of them all have to be obviously wrong, but not too obviously wrong. They have to be pretty wrong, but not completely wrong, but that one has to be the right answer. You can make 50 questions on this test. And you give it to them and they answer them. They're all wrong. You got to walk through and make sure they're not cheating on the test. And then you get the phone call because the kid failed the test. You didn't send home the study guide. Ma'am, I did stand on the study guide. Well, the study guide had questions that weren't on the test. Well, it's not just about that. Okay, come in and have the meeting. So you have the whole meeting about the failing of the test scenario. And the kid's crying, and you're a bully, and you were mean to them, and now they want the retest. So then you got to go home, and you make 50 more retest questions, and you give it to them, and then you send them off in the diploma and say, great work, man. You were a hard worker in my class. Boy, this guy was just working hard in my class from September all the way to June. This is the whole thing. We are working hard. We are working hard. We should be working harder than our students. And this is what we realize in God is that any work with, that we do in him, it's just work that he's done in us first. And this is what grace reminds us. We're not doing the work. I mean, we're working, but we're not doing the work. And I want to remind us today that grace isn't opposed to, to work. Like grace isn't opposed to, grace is opposed to earning. This is the Dallas Willer quote we'll put on the screen. Grace is not opposed to effort, but it is opposed to earning. Paul was the hardest worker you would ever find. This dude is in prison with no clothes and no bed and no home and no place to lay his head. He's got no money. He's at the threat of death all the time. He's shipwrecked. He's bitten by snakes. He's got death warrants out for his arrest. I mean, this dude is living by grace, calls himself a prisoner of grace, but it doesn't oppose to work. And here's where I think we can attack this thing because I think this word striving has kind of gone into the Christian culture to say, oh, we don't strive as though... Striving is this bad thing. There's actually two occasions that the word strive is used in the New Testament, and work is not opposed to the gospel. Work is absolutely part of the gospel. As a matter of fact, people that are motivated by grace work harder than people that don't have grace in their life. That's the mystery of grace. And so when we kind of categorize striving as anytime we're sweating as Christians as though like, oh, well, Jesus loves me so much, I shouldn't have to get up at six in the morning or I shouldn't have to do this work. Or I shouldn't. No, it's like, no, grace is, you see, the people that know grace the most, they do more work because they know how much work he's done and they're mobilized by his work. And striving isn't about working hard. It's not about how hard are you working. It's about why are you working hard? And I like the word striving. It's important to know that we're not working to get something we're not working to earn something. That's very important. I mean, I, I, I'm all about preaching against striving in the way that striving is about getting something that we, that we already have or fighting for something we already have. Absolutely, we don't want to strive and work for something. But if striving means working hard, absolutely, Jesus and Paul and anyone else in the New Testament or any of the missionaries that are out in the field today or any of the people that are working and laboring in this church, they know that grace is a worker. Grace works in us and grace works through us. And grace is not opposed to us working. It's not opposed to us working 48 hours a week. It's not opposed to us doing things we don't want to do. It's not opposed to us working hard because that's how God is working in us. Grace is not passive, you understand. It doesn't just meet us, it moves us and it motivates us. It mobilizes us in ways that no other motivation could move us. That we would be motivated and moved by grace. So the final comment for this last section that God moves, and mo moves us and mobilizes us in grace is that grace works in our lives. And when it does, it makes it impossible to boast because it's his work, not mine. There's no self-made men or women in the church or in the gospel. 
It's his work. He assigned it, and he made it successful. So there's nothing to boast about when there's grace. It's impossible to strive in grace. It's impossible to work hard for grace or too hard for grace because grace has literally worked its life out for us. So there's no limit to the what we can do. It's the why that we want to have clarified. There's no such thing as striving in grace, and there's no such thing as judging in grace. There's no such thing as looking down. So in conclusion, Ephesians discusses all of life in light of grace because all of life is for grace and by grace. He teaches us that we are met by grace and moved by grace and motivated by grace. I'm going to have the band come up, and we're actually going to close in communion today as we reflect on the overarching theme of grace in our lives and in Ephesians. But as the band segues into our final song of worship, I want you to consider with the Holy Spirit, just in your seat on your own, these three questions. As grace might visit you this morning, as it does, whether we see it or recognize it or not, you are rich in Jesus, known by Jesus, the one who owns it all, knows it all, and holds it all, is meeting you right where you are this morning and wants to have a conversation wherever you are. And these three questions might guide you with the Holy Spirit as Timothy plays and then leads us in communion. As we take communion today, reflect on these things. When is Jesus meeting you in grace? Where is he meeting you in grace? In what area of your life are you undeserving? And in that place, he might meet us and change us and transform us as he meets us where we don't deserve to be met. Where Jesus is moving you in grace some way that he empowers us, the way he looks at us, the way he believes in us more than anybody else and says, come and follow me. How does that move you this morning? It's the greatest motivator that you could ever feel. You're designed to respond to grace and the Holy Spirit. And how is Jesus motivating you in grace not to look down on others or not to boast yourself up because you've worked so hard, but to be humbled in grace and find power and authority and strength in your weakness because of grace, that you're moved and mobilized by grace. How is grace meeting you this morning? Jesus, as we reflect this morning, I thank you that you are going to speak not five words, but one word, one picture, one Valjean moment, one word that you want to speak to each and every heart in this moment because grace has not stopped moving towards us. And as we receive you, that we would be moved, that we would be met, that we would be deeply met and encountered by your love as it moves for us and chooses us when we don't. We thank you for the, the body broken, the blood shed as we take that in a moment. Thanks for joining us. If you have been encouraged or challenged by this message, please subscribe and leave us feedback on our iTunes channel. For more information about our church, visit us at www.citylights.cc. Thanks again for exalting Jesus with us.